0: I'm
1: John.
2: I'm Paul. I'm George. And I play the drums. From Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network, it's Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi LePret And Chachi's co-host, Beatles instructor at Suffolk University, David Galan.
1: Well, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, whatever time you are listening. Welcome to Get Back to the Beatles on the Boston Podcast Network or whatever streaming service you are listening to, to hear our podcast. We appreciate you joining us. We want to thank our sponsor, Subaru of New England, and we also want to welcome my famous co-host, the Beatles professor at Suffolk University in Boston, Massachusetts, Mr. David Gallant. Hello, David.
2: Hello, Chachi. How are you? I always take uh, famous. I'll take that for as long as it goes and as far as it goes, which probably is only to the end of my backyard, but I'll take it.
1: (laughs) Well, our guest today is more famous than both of us, and I'm so excited to have this gentleman on the program today. He's an award-winning author. He's written for the London Daily Express, the Times, London, the New York Times, a truly interesting gentleman, a journalist who was eyewitnessed to truly some historic events, two of which I'm speaking are infamous and exceedingly horrendous, actually, Uh, the third being The Beatles, but we will discuss and touch on all of those, and his extraordinary journey in life is really amazing. He's an author of The Beatles and Me on Tour, Manson Exposed, a reporter's 50 year journey into madness. You can find these books at ivordavisbooks.com. They make a fabulous uh, holiday gift, Hanukkah, Christmas, or a gift for yourself. And I really enjoy his book, The Beatles and Me on Tour with the Beatles. A really fascinating book. And we are so happy to welcome to our program today, Ivor Davis. Hello, Ivor. How are you? I'm
0: terrific. Good to be with you in Boston. My my grandson is going to school at Babson College, so oh, sure. I have but like, haven't haven't had the chance to visit him. But you know, all our travels are a little bit, how shall we say, curtailed.
1: Mm. <laughs> well, uh, Professor Gallant, say hello to Ivor Davis.
0: Hello, Ivor. And in in better times,
2: you could visit your uh, grandson there in Wellesley. It's just outside of Boston is where Babson, wonderful school. I assume that he's going to be a titan of industry majoring in business.
0: Well,
1: that's what he thinks, but we'll see. Now, uh, Professor, tell Ivor how many years you've been teaching a Beatles class at Suffolk University.
0: Well,
2: this is going on uh, 15 years of this course to uh, college freshmen. And it's, it's, its antecedent was actually a unit that I taught within a British literature survey, which took students from the Romantic era, Wordsworth Coleridge, up through into the present, as far as I wanted to take it. So we did uh, a couple of units on post-war youth culture: uh, Beatles and punk, Sex Pistols. So that's where that that's that's the roots of this, and it's been a great journey. Some might say a magical mystery tour, but it's been a great journey. And Chachi and I really appreciate guests such as yourself because uh, certainly we've had uh, we've had Beatles insiders, we've had outsiders, we've had the fan perspective. And I, I really do appreciate the journalist perspective because I don't really see a difference between the journalist and the historian, sir. And, and I'm not just going back to the advent of new journalism with Norman Mailer and Joan Didion and Hunter Thompson. But really, I think the journalist perspective is, is, is a great view. And, and my students do read a lot of that published material, both contemporary when it was going on and recollections uh, such as yours. So this is really a fun, always fun type of interview for me.
0: Okay. I mean, I know that I'm supposed to be talking, but i am intrigued. What kind of student, uh, Professor David, do you get that wants to learn more about the Beatles? And I wondered how they uh, learned about the Beatles. I mean, did they were too young for the early music, but is it is there a, a sort of a renaissance?
2: Well, I don't, you know what, not necessarily a renaissance, but... It's been a continual conversation that links generations I think of it more or less as an inheritance right if if um, Chachi and I know people who have written books and they, there's a there's a qualified sort of an accepted definition of what's called a first generation Beatles fan right and and certainly you heard them screaming outside the hotels and motels all hours of the evening but that passion for the music and whatever, type of identity change it inspired in them or political change or different way of viewing the world certainly influences their children and their children's children and the Beatles have never left us in terms of their appearances in popular culture so students know the music because their parents played it and their parents played it because their parents played it or older siblings and there was always that that it's hard to define, but you'll know what I'm talking about. There was always that cool factor associated with the Beatles. And I don't care if you grew up a very hardcore grunge fan or punk fan or disco. There was always a cool factor about the Beatles. And I don't think cool ever goes out of style. And whenever students can access that, it's a, it's, it's a great way for them to be able to learn better how to talk to their elders, and, and I'm certainly one of them at, at this point. And so it's a way to be able to, to speak with uh, prior generations, to, uh, to speak with, well, one historian is a man at Harvard who writes about Shakespeare called the way of speaking with the dead. That's what historians also do, right? And so I think they really find that um, exciting. Plus, the music is great to listen to. I mean, let's not, let's not fool ourselves, right? I mean, there's something that's permanent about it. And they come to the class because, and I hope I deliver on this, even in these days, they think it's going to be fun. And I do assure them it will be if they treat it like any other class, if they do the papers and they do the reading <laughs> and take the exams. So that's the type of student that that I get. Those who think they know a lot about that era and those who may not know anything but, but hope to know more.
0: Well, it's, it is fascinating because when I go to pre coronavirus, when I go to Beatles conventions, I find a wide range of of young people, their parents, their grandparents, with them wanting to know more about the Beatles. So I don't think, uh, I, I mean, you would be better positioned to answer this question. I don't think there are too many pop rock and roll groups who have had this amazing longevity I, I mean
2: Chachi can speak to this as well. He has been been within the industry for so many years. It's it's not just the, the longevity, if we go from generation to generation, if I'm doing a schematic of a top-down, it's also it broadens out, right? I mean it's also lateral. And I don't think that there is purely any sort of complete uh, complete transcultural music that that can that can express itself and touch someone anywhere across the globe at any time. But if any music is going to do that, probably uh, a Beatles music would be able to do that. I I think of the, the anthropologists who had identified that there's, there's one sound that that any human being in the world can understand at any given time and respond to it, no matter language, culture, whatever. And that one sound is a baby crying, right? Because it's pre-linguistic. And so I think of Beatles music as like that that almost primordial sound that, that everybody can, can. as long as I get a footnote, Ivor, I can see you jotting this down, then I'll be happy. <laughs> so, but I think it's really that type of, pri- and think about it, what a, what a wonderful thing that all a group of people People can all talk about at the same time, regardless of their of their backgrounds, and and smile about. Goodness knows there are plenty of noxious and horrible ideas that go from generation to generation. This is a good one, so let's let's keep preserving it, right?
0: Yeah, what I do, I do like primordial, primordial sound. I think that's very good. I've discussed this for a few weeks, a bit longer than that, and it's always interesting to, to come to this with with almost a completely new. Vision, and I like the idea that you're you're telling me things that I don't know, and I like enjoying, and even at uh, at my stage in life, I like to n- know new things. Anyway, sorry to. Ivor,
2: this is this is exactly what I hoped we would talk about because even you yourself, when you've gone on, whether it's an official book tour or interview such as this, I bet even though you have committed to pray to to print and committed to memory certain moments of your time on that tour covering the Beatles, I bet you still discover something new. I mean, it happens to me when I'm listening to a song with students, the same song for 15 years, I might hear something new each time I listen to it with a group of students. And partly because they've pointed out something I'd never really heard before. They've made a connection or a comparison I hadn't heard before. So it's really sort of a, a rich source. I mean, one of the things we we talk about is... Um, when we're viewing one of the texts, and I call their, their video anthology one of the textbooks that we use, really. And they're always surprised when George or John or Paul will remember and recollect an instant that they were all present for, but they recollect it absolutely differently. And I asked them, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that history is, a, 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 as the quote says, a lie agreed upon? Or, or is it something that we make up every once in a while? And then they understand that if they've come from a family and they've had siblings, that years later, they'll talk about something that happened around a holiday or a dinner table, and they'll each re- recollect it differently because one was older than another one, right? So yeah. um, they understand it as a as a human connection when they see it played out like that, right? How can they all remember it differently? <laughs>
0: yeah, well, it, you're absolutely right because you're triggering different thoughts. I mean, in the early days, Brian Epstein said to me, that that, that he was so enmeshed and impassionate about his boys that he would say, 50 years from now, people will be playing the Beatles, will be appreciating the Beatles. And I thought, what a bunch of old ones. (laughs) And, and, And then I remember the time I listened to the Beatles. I was there when they met Elvis Presley. And right away, straight after the event, They were kind of look warm. I mean, they kind of blew him off. I mean, 24 hours later. And then 15 years later, the anthology comes out and they say, wow, this was a historical moment. (laughs) So so history is strange. And people always ask me, and I'm sure they say, well, when you were traveling with them in 1964, that they were going to be as big and so everlasting. And I said, of course not. I don't think when we are younger, unless you're extraordinary, you have great vision. If we are much younger, do we have a vision of history? History, I mean, we live for the moment. I go to the next news story the next day and, and forget about yesterday. So oh, I wish i kept a meticulous diary, but I didn't. And I think that's the the hazard of being young when you're experiencing wonderful amazing things because you don't think of history
2: <laughs> that's that's why I mentioned how uh, every Johnson needs his Boswell and I guess and I guess every Boswell needs their peeps right uh, the yes, diary yes. of London but yeah I, I guess I why do you suppose historically speaking why do you suppose Brian was right how could he have known at that time he knew something or he felt something that even they didn't they thought at that early stage, it was let's make our our money. Maybe John and Paul might be songwriters in Tin Pan Alley for other people. Why was Brian so correct in retrospect?
1: And and, well, and to and, and to say that he would that they would be bigger than Elvis. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. Um, because I think what happened was, I mean, the Beatles were Brian's only passion. We won't go into his sexual desires and mm-hmm. stuff, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So Brian somehow i mean he, he was so wrapped up in them he, they were his boys. they were the meaning of life for him and and i often wonder Brian, as, as most of your listeners know of course died much 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 too young and and, and that really led to the, the breakup of the beatles because he was their headmaster he was their confessor he was the guy that they went to when they had a dispute and he would he would be the final word. Brian had such passion with him. And I remember he told me that he'd gone to see Ed Sullivan and in, 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 in about um, November, soon after John Kennedy was murdered, November 1963, and Ed Sullivan said, well, we, we, we'll, we'll give them second billing uh, on the marquee outside the Ed Sullivan, wherever they did the, the theatre. And, and Brian said, no, no, they've got to have top billing. So he knew, he had other acts, but I don't know, it was the passion, and as I say, if the, I mean, the idea that when Brian died, they broke up, of course they did, but if Brian was still around, I don't think they would have broken up, they would have stayed together, he would have been their arbitrator, he would have been their their confessor, but he knew instinctively with the passion that I've mentioned that they would be big. And the other thing, again, going back to David and your class and your students, uh, you see them, you see the people described as, as Beethoven or learner and Low and stuff, or maybe learner and Low. but somehow the idea of the job all are, are on the same level as Beethoven, come on, you must be crazy. So, so what do you think? What do you guys think? Well, I think that it
2: being, even when they retreated from public performance, they could not help but be very sort of aware of the world around them and to take it in like a sponge and be very sort of socially creative people even when john was living inside his own head maybe that's the for lack of a better term and i don't want to tread upon the specific terminology of of the english working class but their 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 class consciousness or working class background where you could have that sense of the social and your identity was bound up with mate culture, with, with, with having that group. And, and, and Liverpool has much more of that feel perhaps than London or anything else, right? If it's more about individualism and things like that, especially here in the States. And I think that that collectiveness helped bring people into their orbit and they wrote music that way, maybe to speak to more people than just to themselves, even though it pleased themselves and I, and I, and I agree absolutely that Brian's very identity was so bound up with them that if he did not have that firm belief and faith in them, he would, he would have lost faith in himself. And of course, soon enough, he did that, that his own personal uh, demons, if you will, or, or dissatisfactions or depressions, even the Beatles success at that point, couldn't, couldn't overcome those uh, for him. But I understand his passion for it. But I'm, I, I think that that are they the same as, 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 as Beethoven? Well, I think a lot of that comes from who is to say. But it's, it's that whole split, which I'm going to get to later with a question for you. That whole split between whoever decided what is high culture and what is popular culture. I'm so glad that the last however many years of deconstruction did away with those, with those uh, stratifications for goodness sake. I mean, they don't serve anybody's purpose except for those who want to preserve culture for themselves and a small elite few, right? Why? So.
0: Well, you might be further realize you touched upon the working class background, although John was a little bit above working class, but I always remember, I think it was Paul that said they were impressed with Brian because he was in business, okay? So, and we're talking about what brought them, uh, we're talking about a lot. So, he was in business. He wasn't really a businessman. He ran the record section of his parents' furniture store. <laughs> so, but at the same time, he was a businessman, and the Beatles like that. But the thing that I always smile at was when they decided they wanted Brian to manage them, Paul said, well, well, these they, were
2: these were kids who lived on the bus lines, right? So anyone who had a car, my goodness. <laughs> yes.
1: Well, they they certainly believed in Brian because Brian managed to get them out of their leather suits, leather outfits, and stop drinking and eating on stage, and and they took his advice, and he didn't well, have a track well, record for that.
0: I mean, yeah, you've got to give him that because when they did the the the, the Reaper Bound, the German thing, I mean, they were scruffs. They were drunk every night, they were drugged every night, they were oversexed every night in Germany. But, you know, these were young kids with healthy libidos. So this was like orgy land for them. And then he kind of straightened them out. So you've got to give it to him for doing that. But then we're not going into business. But Brian was not a great businessman because he blew it with the merchandising. I'm sure the merchandising story that just was uh, uh, unbelievable. But so... Brian was the right man for the right time. He had passion in them. They were his boys. And as I said, I think if he'd lived longer, they wouldn't have broken up so early. But, the, but once he went, that was the beginning of the end, in a way.
2: Well, Ivor, the, the, the show business acumen of Brian, though he had not come from that world he certainly longed for that world, right? And and yes, he, he and the frustrated actor impresario, if you will. And this exactly. was the perfect lump of clay. These four guys, right, to put that together. Yes. So I'm sure that you'll you'll regale us later. But getting them out of the Reaper Bond, you can take the boys out of the Reaper Bond, but the Reaper Bond never leaves the boys, right? You can <laughs> that, have you can exactly. have you can you can have brush parted hair in the Pierre Cardin suits on the outside, but I'm sure yes. Orgy Land still existed in the in, in the motor lodges of Minneapolis.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, well uh, it it was there. Uh, it wasn't as 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 brutal and as blatant and as I don't know raw as it was in Germany because because from all the I mean I wasn't there but from all all I've read and heard it was pretty licentious and it was just uh, uh, crazy. But you know these were four kids from Liverpool who suddenly were thrown into orgy land and in the red light in Germany where anything goes.
2: Ivor, your, your itinerary alone at the beginning of your book, though, it's not just the reaper bond. When the two teenage girls manage to mail themselves in a box and it shows up at the hotel and they jump yeah. out, I mean, that uh, that doesn't have to happen in in Hamburg. It happened wherever it happened, Indianapolis or somewhere like that, right? In the nice, calm Midwest. It, so, it
0: did. It, it, it happened did. in America. Because, because look... As I said earlier, they were healthy young men. I mean, even though John was married, but John was John and he never stopped being John. He was always a bit of a wild card, as we all know. But this was great. Uh, They came to America. America was a land that not too many rock stars conquered. I mean, Tommy Steele and a few other people like that came over to America and people said, ho-hum. And that was why Brian was so passionate about America, because he knew that many, many rock people that came from England failed. And he didn't want the boys to fail. And of course, yeah. they didn't fail.
1: Well, Ivor, you you talk about the hijinks that the Beatles got into back in the day. And you're a journalist. And there's an example of how journalism has changed because the press saw a lot of things back then and didn't say a word about it. Whatever President Kennedy was getting into on the side, yeah. what the Beatles got into. The press, it was a whole different world back then, right, sir?
0: Look, you talk about John Kennedy. I remember in my early days as a newspaper man interviewing, having lunch with a, wo- a woman called um, Judith Exner Campbell. Oh, She'd yeah. Just written, Judith Exner Campbell had just written the book. And then, while I read the book, it was basically the meat of the book was, well, while I was sleeping with John Kennedy, I was sleeping with Sam Jim Carner, the, the, the mob boss from <laughs> yeah. wherever, Chicago, or Florida, I don't know. And, 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 oh, wow. But everybody knew about Kennedy's proclivities, sexual proclivities. We'll just leave it that way. So getting jumping to the Beatles. In those days, I knew that if I wrote anything about the boys' sexual activities or frolicking or whatever you want to call it, whatever euphemism I'm going to throw in there, whenever if I wrote about that, I would get a call from Brian. He'd say, Ivor, thanks for coming. Here's your ticket to get out. So, you know, yeah, on the other hand, what happened was I was, I was, they had uh, uh, turned me to a Beatle family member. And you don't, you don't spill the beans on your family members. You don't, I I suddenly felt part of the inner circle. And look, today, as uh, Tachi mentioned, I think if somebody had an affair with somebody or did some silly, stupid thing, Within 15 seconds, if it happened in Boston, we would know about it in L.A., we'd know about it in, in Singapore because of the Internet. So uh, it's a kind of a long-winded ramble that I'm going on. But you get the picture that we were protective of the Beatles, even though they got up to a lot of shenanigans.
2: So, Ivor, one thing that I cover in class, and this does come from the way that Jonathan Gould approached his, his book, Can't Buy Me Love. And he always wanted to put what was going on with the Beatles in historical context, and I do make the point to my students about somewhat about journalism and the way the Beatles were covered. And that at least how they handled the American press when they got here seemed to have been pretty much a walk in the park compared to the British tabloid press, which invented a type of journalism in some ways yes. or perfected it. And I, and I try to make the point to them that these are really the roots of TMZ and the other types of, of news hounds that are out there, because in the era of the Beatles, you certainly had the whole Profumo scandal blowing up and and keeping the 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 fleet street papers going on forever and ever and there's your judith exner over there and yes. and everything like that right however yes. when you're brought into the inner circle did you feel a tension of like i'm now in the inner circle and and you don't you don't take sides against the family talk about sam giancana i'm quoting the godfather right you don't take yes. sides <laughs> against the family fredo you don't do yes. that right but did you feel at all compromised because oh boy if i was if i was beating the the walking the beat on on fleet street i i would really have a i'd have a scoop here and i would be able to sell a lot of papers for my
0: tabloid yeah. well david times have changed to today because as i say covering up is a lot more difficult i believe than it was then i mean if you remember i covered hollywood and i want to tell you whenever there was i'm sorry i'm dodging the i'm not dodging the question but When I covered Hollywood in the early days, if there was a scandal in Beverly Hills, either the studio stepped in and and, and covered it up or police chief Clinton Anderson would make a call and it would be covered up. So that was what was happening. Now, with the Beatles, so there was a story in Las Vegas about an underage girl being in the room with John Mm -hmm. and, and nothing supposedly happened, but the mother who had got a bit drunk, uh, apparently, went charging it and said, where are my daughters? And uh, she said she would she would uh, report them to the juvenile authorities. And, of course, Brian was very upset about that. And a lot of negotiating went on. And I think in that particular case, I don't know for sure, that maybe the mother was given a few shillings to go away. <laughs> so, I mean... I, I'm I'm sort of downplaying it. So, but but I didn't write about it because uh, because at the same time it was nothing was ever proven. If it gone to court, now that would have been a different kettle of fish. And so the, it was slightly different. And as I said in Hollywood, the only the only scandals that you read about back then in the sixties, seventies, fifties was a magazine called Confidential Magazine, which which made its reputation like the National Enquirer of of yesteryear on printing salacious stuff. It's always like, well, wow, Rock Hudson gay. No. Well, <laughs> I wouldn't believe that, would you? Anyway, so it was a different kettle of fish. And there weren't, to be honest with you, other than young women visiting the beetles in, in the midst in the sort of middle of the night or that sort of thing, and, and the fact that uh, John would openly swallow uh, prelude in uh, uh, and, and and offer me one, uh, which I didn't really need. Uh, and of course, the smoking pot. It, it didn't. There weren't horrible stories that we covered up for them. Even though, uh, I mean, you talk about the mob family. Is it? Is it omerta? Is that silence? Is that the right word? But anyway, yeah, you, maybe I've got know, the right I, word. I,
2: I can neither confirm nor deny if you're <laughs> using the right word.
0: <laughs> okay, got it. Very good. Very very sharp.
2: <laughs> Chuck and, uh, and I are both of Italian American heritage and uh, yes. we'll just leave it at
1: that. Yeah, we'll yeah, leave, leave it, it
0: at that. that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, th- sorry to bring it up. <laughs> but uh, Ivor,
1: as a couple of years went by, the press kind of turned on the Beatles though. Right. Certainly when the, when the butcher cover came out, Oh, the Beatles yeah. made their first mistake.
0: And I, I mean, I, I remember I was quite friendly with Michael Caine and Michael Caine. And some of those actors, when they moved to LA, they got they got bad press. I mean, Michael Caine. I mean, he is Mr. Wonderful. He is a great guy He's still around today. Still making movies in his eighties. But I remember, you know, it's, it's it's is it the tall poppy syndrome in Australia? Don't you dare get too tall because we will have relish to put you down to the size you deserve. So, so that was that the, the kind of attitude there there and then. But the Beatles were getting richer. And in a way, the Brits love it. The Brits love it when a homegrown boy, a homegrown talent, a homegrown rock group makes it internationally. And then they say, like the Australians, don't you get too carried away with your own (laughs) self-importance. You better watch it. Mm -hmm. And if you try to do that, we're going to... We're going to cut your toenail off (laughs) you. So break your ankle, break break your kneecap. Sorry, break your
1: kneecap. That's right. But it's interesting that John said we're bigger than uh, Jesus. It went over. No one even noticed in the UK, but in the US, totally different.
0: Well, I mean, what happened was he called Maureen Cleave, who was a very good writer for the London Evening Standard, that the story ran. It was a story about John living in splendor in in his manor house in the Surrey on the outskirts of London and nobody even sneezed when it came out and then it was then it somehow made its way to a a fan magazine called i think it was called Datebook
1: Datebook correct right.
0: Date and all of a sudden particularly in the in the south and i must say i've lived in america for since 1961 a long time wow and then i suddenly woke up the other day and thought america is a strange country Because there are certain states, I live in California, there are certain states, it's got nothing to do with the Beatles, of course, there are certain states that are a different country. It is a different country. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're okay in Boston, but I'm not too sure in one of the Carolinas (laughs) and uh, Alabama, well, Alabama, don't even go there. (laughs) Anyway... I don't want to go all over the place. I'm sorry to... to, to, no, to, to no, no, to... no. No, no.
2: It's, 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 right, it's, it's right in line. And in fact, we, we, we just covered in class the, that whole contretemps, the whole kerfuffle yeah. about bigger than Jesus. And, and some of the footage that is seen in the anthology of the, the, the KKK member being interviewed on the nightly news outside of, I believe <clears throat> it was maybe in Memphis or <clears throat> where they were going to play. And, I,
0: and, and yeah. actually, David, what happened was, and it was amazing, I mean, John was terrified. I've never seen, John was, I saw him in LA. He was, he was scared. He was scared that there were death threats. They burnt the records and we saw, we saw pictures of of, of vinyl being, going up in smoke. And, and it became a scary time, but it kind of fed into, in a way, John's desire that I don't want to tour anymore. Right. That was the final straw. That that nineteen sixty six tour, as you right. you, you, you right. guys are the experts of the of the time. After sixty six, before that, John said we're like performing fleas at the circus. They don't they don't come to, to to hear our music. They come to see us. I don't want that anymore. So he wasn't too upset. And then that was the final straw. And as nineteen sixty six, the last time they ever performed in San Francisco. Never again in public, except on the roof of. Uh, with Abbey Road or whatever, just
1: yeah.
2: Get Apple. Uh, yeah, Bakers, yeah. Uh, so,
0: so, so John was quite happy to to quit and get back into the studio and make music. So I, I, we've sort of gone around. I've gone around a little bit, a few mm-hmm. back alleys, but. Mm-hmm. but, but, but well, yeah, I, I I do think that the
2: part of what his not his defense, but part of his lamenting that time was, it, after he said what he said. The way that journalists or newspaper or the media, if you will, picked up and ran with it was well beyond anything he said. And I make that point to the class that this is sort of a a bit of an anatomy of a PR disaster. After he said what he said, as opposed to people stopping and thinking about the content of it, and maybe part of the fear was that he may not have been wrong. (laughs) <laughs> that what what goes on after that and how that grows into a conflagration really is a is a story in and of itself and partly the media plays into it and, and journalists do play into it because they want to touch the public in a particular way. In, in certain areas of the country, as you mentioned, yes. I mean, my, my wife was fearful if the election didn't go the way she wanted that we would have to pick up and move. And I reminded her of where we are in Massachusetts that relatively we are even more liberal than half the countries in Western Europe and that will be just fine. But it really is something about the way journalism, good, bad or indifferent, picks up on something and then creates a whole different world out of it in, yeah, in, in some ways.
0: You're, you're absolutely right. And as we're talking, it, yeah, So let's apply what you've just said, David, to, to the John Lennon thing, because there was a fear, there was an apprehension, there was an uncertainty in his life. And I remember, I think one of the publishers said, uh, it "Wasn't Derek? He wasn't. He wasn't there." Derek Taylor said somebody threw off a firecracker in the stadium, and and they looked around and said, "Oh my God!" They expected it to be John bleeding on the on stage. Right. So everybody was paranoid. But but, hey, jumping to twenty twenty, David, to what your wife said, it's true. I live in Southern California, and in Beverly Hills. They hired like 200, 300 extra security people. They boarded up Rodeo Drive (laughs) waiting for the the revolt, waiting for people to come and smash windows. So the atmosphere that we have gone through in this last month or two months or three months uh, can be applied, the mindset, if you like, can be applied to the John Lennon I was a beetle bigger than Jesus. It I was. Mean,
2: it, it was. Happened, but. It was. It was too frighteningly relevant, and it was too easy to make the parallel and almost be able to skip everything in between. I mean, when he accidentally says it, or it is, yes. it is taken a certain way, and it's an offhanded remark. In some ways, it gives license for twenty years later, or ten years later for Johnny Rotten to intentionally say, God save the Queen and cause as much trouble, right? And all of those yeah. problems. And so they, they broke doors down, the Beatles did, in so many ways, socially and politically, not all by design, certainly. And so what a lot of students can take for granted that, that John Lennon could uh, in retrospect have been now what he was apologized to by the Vatican maybe less than 10 years ago they finally forgave him for that yeah, and I yeah, said you know yeah. what things like that made it possible for bono to be nominated for Nobel Peace Prize right another yeah. pop star right yeah, so yeah. so it's it is it was too frighteningly relevant but what makes those, what makes the, the the links and the discussions possible? That connective tissue is is the work of, of of people like yourself and and others. I mean, it's. I had heard Chachi for years had had interviewed a contemporary of yours on the American side, Larry Kane, who traveled. Oh yes, with, who traveled as well. And yeah, so um, Larry, Larry was
0: there. Larry, yeah. So Larry yeah. was a young guy working for radio, and 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 just thought he he'd, he'd struck, he'd come to heaven because. He thought he, and Brian just gave him open open sesame. Right. Yes.
2: No. Go ahead. Sorry. No. No. But I mean, it's it's amazing though that so, uh, folks like yourself or Larry who were maybe given the assignment, right? That in retrospect, yes. people would have given their their eyesight for. <laughs> yes. Right. You just given the assignment, and well, what's all this about? And and then you 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 have unlimited access, and like you're saying, years later, it, it it's quite a story to tell. And I know that I, 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 Chachi must want to cover some particular moments that you wrote about so so eloquently, and and it's a great way to keep the memory going too, right? To commit it to uh, paper. Oh,
0: yeah, uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm sorry, we've sort of we've gone around the, around the houses, but but it, but it is interesting just to finish to sort of p, the, the the final note on that bigger than Jesus. If I'm sure, maybe you've seen the Maureen Cleave article, and in a way taken in. Context, it, it doesn't
2: seem so outrageous, does it? No, nope. you barely notice it. Yeah, it's part it's uh, part, it's part of the fabric of a, of a longer piece. Yeah. Yes, yes,
0: yes, yes, so, yes.
1: So, just so go ahead um, so. Wow. Well, for me, I've I've been in radio in Boston for thirty nine years, and I look at what radio is today, and boy, it's changed so much. It's so homogenized. And you, as a journalist, you must sit there. And say what has become of the world with fake news? Where is journalism today? So, how do you? What are your thoughts on all that? Well,
0: you know, it, it's interesting that you should say that. Now, I, I don't want to go off off uh, meeting, if you like. That's but all right. but yeah, the, the other day, I mean, I've been reading about fake news and fake stuff. And to be honest with you, I consider myself moderately intelligent and that I can see a, 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 a phony story when it hits mm-hmm. me in the eye. And then and this is so almost puerile, uh, ridiculous, but somebody in England sent me a picture of a couple dancing, okay? And they said, look what the Chinese can do. They turned, you wouldn't believe this, but these are robots doing the dance. And I looked at it and I thought, wow, that is amazing maybe what the Chinese can do with robots. So I sent it to my sister in London, and she said, what are you talking about? That's the the couple that danced on Dancing with the Stars or whatever the show is in England. (laughs) It's John Smith and his girlfriend Gladys. I mean, that's not their name. (laughs) And I said, oh, is it? So I was fooled. I was absolutely taken to the cleaners on that one. So, and this is a minor thing, and who the hell cares anyway? This is a silly story. But it shows you what you can be fed and you what you can actually swallow without realizing it. So mm-hmm. I, I know we're not talking about fake news, but, but yeah. I couldn't resist throwing that in because it happened last week.
1: No, well, I brought it up, so certainly we wanted yeah. your comments. But, Professor, what's really amazing is, some of the things that Ivor was eyewitness to, not only the Beatles, and we'll touch on the other things momentarily, but he was in the room when the Beatles met Elvis. How significant was that in Beatle history in the academic world, Professor? And the fact that not many people are left in this world today that were there and nothing with no photographs, no video. And so before I ask Ivor about that experience, David, where does that land in the in the legacy of the Beatles meeting Elvis Presley?
2: Well, in the context of the class, it's. It, I hate to say that I don't see it as important to talk about their meeting with Elvis compared to their buildup and image of him when they were kids. Uh, yes. That Elvis is so much more important to them than, quote-unquote, the real Elvis. And in fact, I think Lennon had cooled and the rest of them had sort of cooled on Elvis after he came out of the army because he was already kind of caught up in the show business world. And, and talk about what you had mentioned, uh, Chachi, about contemporary rock and roll radio or uh, rock radio and how generic it seems. That's exactly what Elvis was. The, the teeth were out of him. And I don't know whether that contributed to the fact that officially, we never got the Beatles covering Elvis on record. All their other rock and roll heroes, they covered anyone from Buddy Holly to Smokey Robinson. And Elvis was untouched in a lot of ways. But I think that they had already cooled on him as, as, a, as an important force or even as a, as a generator of great music. It was always about Elvis's look and style and attitude that, that they really sort of looked at him as a god. That That's always talked about, right? He was this godlike figure. And by the time they actually met him, well, this is uh, this is sixty five up in the Hollywood Hills. They they met him. Yeah, Yeah,
0: it was Um, was in the summer of sixty five. Yeah,
2: summer of sixty five. And I think maybe they saw him and his persona as, uh, dare I say, almost passe at at that point. And uh, the other thing was that, as much as they might have admired Elvis or patterned themselves against uh, after him. You really couldn't, and it didn't mean as much to them. I always make that point to the students that what what kept the Beatles well, together or, or kept them sane in the midst of all of that madness was that they each had three others who knew exactly what they were going through. And that whole sense of growing up as a group of mates was really important. As much as Lennon was an individual or would stand out or had his issues, he needed at least a close group of friends to, to be party to all of that. And Elvis was that very typical sort of American mythology of the lone male. And that just doesn't ring true amongst a group of mates in England. And, and thank goodness for it. So I think that they they never saw him as a model in that way. So we don't cover it as much as the mythology of Elvis. And even when we, we cover Lenin's comments just before his death, In those in those great interviews with Rolling Stone and with Playboy, where he talks about help as being a song from his fat Elvis period. Well, there wasn't a fat Elvis period until the late 70s or the mid 70s. (laughs) And so when we see, well, that's what he thought of Elvis. Toward the end, and he thought of Elvis in the beginning a certain way, I think of 65 in that meeting is in the middle. in in that tour and meeting Elvis, they also met a lot of other people that they admired and they were hanging out with more contemporaries like the birds and, and folks like that. So it's not, it's not something that we, we cover in great detail, but it's much more interesting to read Ivor's account of it. That's much more interesting than the Beatles meeting Elvis is someone being there. Much like he can talk about this labor, much like I had already pointed out to him when he was around when they met Dylan, when I, I think probably the Beatles meeting Dylan culturally has much more, (laughs) much more importance and resonance than meeting Elvis.
0: You covered a a tremendous lot of ground there, but can I just address a few of the a few? Please do, please, please. John said to me that he loved Elvis because, as you pointed out, he was growing up in Liverpool and listening to Elvis uh, on his radio at two o'clock in the morning Hmm. uh, on Radio Luxembourg, which was one of the rock and roll channels. That they let we all listen to. I listened to Elvis on Radio Luxembourg because there weren't any there weren't any radio shows that had current pop 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 people. So John liked that. In 1964, which was the tour I covered from start to finish, they did talk about meeting Elvis. It never happened. Elvis was making movies. The Beatles were running around from, from coast to coast, Canada too busy. And then that year of the meeting. I saw Brian Epstein's letter that he wrote to Parker, saying the boys should meet, but we shouldn't make this a press event, a press circus. No recordings, no photographers, nothing. And it was it was unfortunate that indeed that that that, that nobody was there to record it. Fortunately, I was there. I happened to, to to manage to get in. But but something you said a moment ago, David, the conversation took a long time to warm up. And then Elvis finally said, no, but nobody introduced Elvis to the Beatles when they got there. They sat around like, like strangers. And so finally Elvis made a joke, I'm going to bed, unless you guys came here to jam, and they did jam, and they kind of loosened up. But during the conversation after the jam, Paul said something that rang a bell with something you just said, David. Paul said to Elvis, I wish you'd make the kind of record the kind of songs that you used to make. Well, that was a kind of a, a, a knife in the groin. <laughs> and Elvis thought, what is this guy? These punks from these punks from England who've knocked me off top of the hip parade when I was king. I mean I'm I'm playing mm-hmm. here. And they come along and they tell me what kind of music I should write and they're suggesting that I'm past it. I'm past my best because the old stuff was better and the new stuff is crap. All that thing going on in Elvis' and that, 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 the sort of the undertones. And of course, the undertones were definitely there. I was there, watched them meet uncomfortably. And the amazing thing was that uh, that they didn't really hit it off that well. And the other thing was, besides Elvis being uh, deposed as king, was that they made Elvis made three rotten movies a year. I mean, sure, so if you look <laughs> at Elvis, 35 movies in. In, in 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 ten years. I mean three movies, same movie, same script, different girl, different song. And and the and the Beatles come along with one one movie, A Hard Day's Night, and there's Smash It. So there's all that resentment simmering beneath the surface. I forget where I'm going with this, but, but the point is it wasn't I mean the Beatles did want to meet Elvis. and Certainly John did, and Parker, Colonel Parker, the Beatles uh, sorry the the elvis manager which was schmoozing with the beatles i mean the year before he showed up at their rented house in in beverly hills with 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 gifts uh, from elvis to each of the beatles i mean cowboy hats and, and and a stack of elvis records so he wanted the beatles there but elvis uh, was a bit disconcerted by the beatles and and john lennon once said to me i forget where it was because i'd served in the british army for what they call national service, and John was possibly going to be a candidate for national service, and he said, "If they call me up to do national service two years, it's a bloody waste of time. I'm going to I'm going to emigrate to Ireland because he never had to because uh, national service national service finished." But John said, "The reason I don't want to go in the British Army is Elvis went into the American Army and his career no done. <laughs> his career went." Well, it didn't quite because when he came back, he did all these these you know eight hundred performances, eight hundred performances at the at the Las Vegas Hilton, which was then called the International. And so he didn't his career didn't die. And the other thing you addressed, David, a moment ago was the camaraderie. Elvis had his Memphis Mafia, but but Elvis was the boss. He couldn't go to them and ask for them advice. He wouldn't take their advice. Really, he gives them a Cadillac instead. <laughs> and the Be- and and the Beatles had each other, uh, different personalities. They were mates, as you said, David. Uh, and, and so they had it. They ruled it over Elvis. Elvis was on his own, and and uh, I guess you know that was one of the reasons why he died so young. What, forty early forties.
2: Yeah, he basically imploded. There was no one around him to take the piss to talk about to, to knock him down in, in a good way. Right. Yes, yeah. Yes.
0: <laughs> and,
1: uh, and gentlemen, correct me if I'm wrong, but years later, Elvis wanted Nixon to deport John Lennon.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, here's what happened. Uh, and I and I read Elvis's letter that he wrote when he was drunk or high on the plane to, to Nixon saying, why why I, why you, you should meet me because I, I can bring you all the votes you need. I, the young people adore me, blah, 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 blah. And then when he went to see Nixon in the White House, and you've seen those pictures, and I think they made a movie with Kevin Costner, which I, I don't think I saw. Did you any of you saw the Kevin Costner movie? I did not see Elvis? it, no. No. Well, so, so he goes to see Nixon and to endear himself or whatever, or other, other strong terms of endearment, that I won't go down... To 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 impress Nixon, he says, "Well, those Beatles—they're they're kind of bums because they make a million dollars in America, they go back to England, spend the money, and then badmouth America." Well, the Beatles never badmouthed America. So why was Elvis so bloody negative about the Beatles? Because he was envious of them. So. Anyway, I, I envious, uh,
2: envious, and, and very insecure. And it's funny because he was he was a walking pharmaceutical firm, and I think he was also whispering to Nixon that they were corrupting the youth with their use of drugs. And yeah, <laughs> it, it might have been. Um, and this is a matter of debate. I think it might have been Kurt Russell and not Kevin Costner. Did, did oh, sorry, famous, why did I think so? famous yeah. Elvis? Famous Elvis uh, movie, yeah. very very well done actually, but. Yes, I do think that he was rife with insecurities. Like Oh, well that well, it,
0: that was exactly it. You know, you I mean it, it talk about the drug thing it was like there was at the pot calling the kettle black, as we yeah. used to say. <laughs> um <laughs> there was Elvis who was a walking pharmacy, as you said, and, and he got, got his prescriptions legally, and and all everybody around him was a, a total enabler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nobody could say to him, Elvis, so you better better stop. Uh, certainly Priscilla, who was around at the time, was a little kid. I mean, not a kid, but you know And I mean? <laughs> was a uh, and so nobody, I mean, Parker was Parker. Parker just wanted to feather his nest, which he did do in Vegas. They gave him a suite of offices at the hotel, and and Parker was a happy camper. And he, co- anyway. We'll
1: yeah, to well, t- talk t- about bad management. Parker took 50%. Brian certainly didn't do that. <laughs>
0: Brian, I think, took twenty five percent to start with. I think mm-hmm. now I don't know, David. What, what, what? Your, your research and your expertise. Did Brian take more than twenty five percent of the Beatles' money?
2: I don't believe it was that much. Now, initially, with the contract, uh, Chachi, wasn't it ten
1: percent? I I can't be the sure. The standard so. fee. Mm-hmm. I know I cannot yeah. be sure. So, with yeah, that said, yeah, go ahead, Ivor.
0: Yeah, you're talking about money. There's a story that I'm sure most of you know of the merchandising. Oh. John. Hate, John hated merchandising. You've heard the story. So, so Brian says to his lawyer, "We're going to America. Would you like to handle the merchandising?" And the, guy, and the lawyer said, "Well, it's kind of beneath me. Okay, fair, fair enough. So, give it to this Nikki.
1: Nikki. Forget his
0: last name. Nikki. Give it. Give it to Nikki. And Nikki formed the company called Seal Tab, which is people right. spelled backwards." And he goes to America and then you know maybe a year later he shows up in Brian's office and gives him a check. Here's a check, Brian, for 10000 dollars And Brian says, Wow, fantastic. He says, Um, how much of this do I owe you? And Nikki says, Um, Brian, 90% for us, 10% for you. And Brian says, Oh. Yeah, mm, yeah Nikki, <laughs> Byrne. Nikki
1: Byrne. Nikki Burn. Right? Nikki Byrne. Nikki yeah. Byrne,
0: okay. Well, yeah. Nikki burned him. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, but it, exactly. Iver to, for the, the, the tour that you covered and you and you you great you gave some great details, some of which I had never really seen before about some of those negotiations back and forth between Sullivan and, and Brian at the beginning there. And to make the point to the, the, the students who talk about Elvis is that Brian wasn't as interested in pushing the money aspect, right? Pushing no, for a big no. payday. What he wanted instead was that exposure, was the three weeks in a row, which which would get the image in people's minds and everything like that, and that was that was a genius move culturally and 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 structurally,
0: but not bottom line right away, right? So
2: yeah,
0: absolutely right because Brian went on his own dime or his own shilling and and and, and met with Sullivan and he knew instinctively that if he got them on the show, that would be the shop window. And he, and he was so right because we all know, I mean, 74 million people tuned in to the first Beatles show, 73, 74. Uh, and, and then, of course, he gave them, I mean, I think the Beatles, I mean, I, off the top of my head, the Beatles got $5,000. And they did they did the Ed Sullivan show in New York. They did the Ed Sullivan show in uh, uh, Florida, Miami. Miami. Yeah, Miami. And, and uh, which is kind of peanuts, really, although maybe it was big money then. And uh, but Brian knew, and you've got to give him credit. He knew this is the vehicle, this is a show show page. Yep.
1: Wow. Well, I do want to talk. Approaching an hour, David, and I do want to talk about a couple of other things that i was eyewitness to. One that is tied into the Beatles. Ivor, you were first on the scene at the Charles Manson murders.
0: Yeah. Well, as a foreign correspondent. The funny thing is, you cover stories. I never. I have kids and I have grandkids, but I never told them about my travel with the Beatles. I mean, it, it, it sounds ridiculous. And then I wrote the book, and then they said, "Oh, did you really travel with the Beatles?" <laughs> anyway, so, so I, I mean, so after the Beatles, I remember this because after the Beatles, I came home. I was living in Southern California, living in Beverly Hills, and the next day, the office called me and said, "The, the, the Warren Commission report has just come out." We want you to do the story. And so uh, I forgot about the Beatles within hours. And then it came back to haunt me. And, and as we all know, because I did the book, years, years later. So the Manson case so very briefly is that again, big story. London calls me. There's been a murder in a high-rent district of Beverly Hills. Go over there, I go over to this house on Cielo Drive. By pure chance, I mean it was a a, a fluke. By pure chance. A friend of mine called Philip Freed, a soccer-playing friend of mine, lives two two houses uh, on Cielo Drive. So we don't know. Nobody knows who lives in the house, somebody high profile. I go over to Philip to use his phone to call my London office because we didn't have cell phones back then. Remember that? Back then, 1969. (laughs) Yeah. And and, uh, and then Phil says, well, yeah, Roman Polanski lives there with his wife, uh, Sharon Tate. I don't know when well, other people, and then I learned who was there, and then of course hours later uh, the cops told us who had been murdered and 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 told us the story of of, uh, of the victims. But so you know, you're at the right place at the right time because it's your job to do it. It's not there's nothing magical. I happen to be fortunate or not fortunate to cover murder stories, but fortunate to be around when. These things happened.
1: Well, let me ask you, Ivor, what did you think when they were inciting Beatles lyrics?
0: I heard what happened. I, I must tell you very briefly. Please. So after Charles Manson was arrested, I heard he lived at the Spahn Ranch. So the first thing I did, as any daily newspaper journalist would do, I went over to the Spahn Ranch. And I was very lucky. I, I met two Manson devotees who were not involved in the murders. Uh, Brooks Poston, and, and I forget the other, and Paul Watkins. And they sit down and tell me the story of Manson and how he gave them drugs and how he was their guru and how everybody adored him. And they tell me this story, and I, I think, well, shall I say, you, this is a bunch of hooey, but they say, well, Charlie told it all and we believed it, that the lyrics from the Beatles' White Album, songs from the Beatles' White Album, was a secret message to him, to Charlie Manson, that there was going to be a black-white revolution and they better escape to the desert. And, and, and the reason that they, we believed it was there were songs like Helter Skelter, which was, which was Things Are Coming Down Fast, Revolution, uh, Revolution, Piggies, Piggies yeah. Are the Cops. So it there it all is. So I hear this story from these Manson acolytes, and I sit there thinking, shall I say this is a bunch of phooey, which I think it is, or shall I just continue to listen? And, of course, you continue to listen? And then a year later, I'm sitting in the in second row of the courthouse in July of 1970, and the district attorney stands up and says, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we will prove that Charles Manson conspired to kill all these people because he felt he he, he listened to the beatle lyrics of the white album, blah, 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 blah. And I think has the district attorney lost his, is he bonkers? And yet they use that thesis as the motive for the murders. And of course, as we all know, they got a conviction.
1: Well, if I may show you one thing and professor, I don't even know if you know this about me. We've known each other for so long. I collect high end books. Uh, very nicely published books. I have a bunch. I have a whole presidential library signed by a, a bunch of presidents. But I, I, I have this book here. It's the Skelter, Vincent Bugliosi, and it's autographed by the gentleman. It's a very nice book because I was. I'm a big fan of Vincent Bugliosi, so it is uh, autographed by him. And I just had to bring up the, that story because that's really an. Important yeah. story, I, certainly with the Beatles.
0: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I want you to tell me how you look after your book so well. I'm very impressed with that. But we'll do this another time. You can tell me that. I think it's fantastic because I've just been going through my books and they're chaotic. But, but also, I'm going to tell you this. I don't want to destroy your day, Tucky, but Vincent was a brilliant lawyer. He was an maniac. He was all about Vincent. He, he would brook no interference. But he was the perfect man for the trial because he lived it, he slept it, and all the rest of it. And he, he got the jury to convict. On the on the on the Beatles made me do it. White album, thesis. I mean, it's crazy.
1: It is, <laughs> uh, Professor. Do
2: you, you want to say anything? Uh, well, it, it's an interesting it's an interesting case to prove that they made me do it because oftentimes. That def- not the prosecution, but that defense of something else made me do it. It usually doesn't wash. If we think of something that happened just up the coast, with of course with the the killing of of, of Harvey Milk and Moscone was yeah. the Twinkie defense, right? That that made me do it. The sugar and everything, and no one bought that. Thank God. And they bought this. Thank God to put them away forever. So you had to have been crazy. To have thought that about the lyrics that they were talking to you, much like the 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 postman in New York thought the dog was talking to him, son of Sam, and and they're both sort of crazy. And 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 Chapman thought that J D. Salinger was talking to him through Catcher in the Rye, right? Or or Hinkley thought that Jodie Foster was talking to That's him. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that that when you when you cross that line from oh, this is what I think the Beatles song means to me and then you cross that line into into homicide, then that's overinterpretation, right, Uh, writ large.
0: Well, (laughs) Professor, one thing I should say, which kind of fed into the Vincent thesis, was I covered the trial from day one. And first of all, Manson was proven in the jury's eyes to be the manipulator of the gold, because in a nine-month trial, when he did something, the girls did something. When he told them to carve uh, crosses and swastikas in their head, they did. When he said sing, they sang. So it, it, it reinforced in the jury's mind that Manson, if he was manipulating them in full public view in the trial, it, it, it was not a hard thing to jump to Manson saying, hey, go out and kill. Mm-hmm for this reason. And so they did it. They uh, they were obedient slaves. And, and so Manson's own behavior in the courtroom led to his eventual downfall, which I think mm-hmm. was justified anyway, yeah. if, if you know what I mean. Wow.
1: Now, Ivor, if you could just comment on another story, obviously a big story in your life, the assassination of uh, Bobby Kennedy. Uh, you were there.
0: Yes, I was. I've been covering Bobby Kennedy for a book that my newspaper was writing, and Bobby Kennedy was my assignment. And I must say, Bobby Kennedy, as most of was was adored. It was amazing to see him. I mean, it wouldn't happen today, uh, because I don't think the Secret Service would let people get that close. But at the end of the day, I would see Bobby Kennedy's hands, and they were actually roar from touching people, holding people. So we go along to the Ambassador Hotel and, of course, the word is out that Bobby has won California and will go to Chicago with all the delegates and has a good chance of becoming the presidential candidate. And we're in the ballroom and uh, Bobby makes a few jokes about Mayor Yorty and, and and he wanted to thank his dog. I forget the name of the dog. I mean, it was just a kind of a lighthearted, because he, but he was, he was a happy man. He knew he had won California. And at, then we were going out to another room uh, to, where he was going to have a press conference. And so they took him through the kitchen into the pantry. And as we followed, I heard, I would say, about six balloons popping. And then I realized they were not balloons popping. And, and there were people screaming. And as I walked into the pantry, Bobby Kennedy's brother-in-law... I just forgotten his name, I had a blank on his name. He said, You can't come through. And I said, What's going on? Uh, and 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 I and I pushed my way in, and there was Bobby lying on the floor with his head cradled by Ethel. He would put a straw, a straw hat, one of those straw boaters under his head. He didn't look in good condition. <sighs> he was screaming, give him air. My the photographer that I work with called Harry Benson. I looked around and there was Harry Benson standing on a, a steel table in the pantry taking pictures. And Harry Benson's pictures are remarkable. There have been some remarkable pictures. And it, it was bedlam. There were people screaming. And and then they, they, they took Bobby away. And for the next hour, I started with the, I was standing next to the ABC television guy. And, and, and we were talking to witnesses. Did you see the gunman? There was one gunman and there was two gunmen. No, no. I saw I saw a second gunman who left a well dressed man. It was Bedlam, and the reason I'm it's so fresh. I remember that. Who would not forget that? But I watched about a three hour live recording, and there I am with the ABC news guy talking to these eyewitnesses. The lady in the polka dot dress who said that she never saw a gunman. Anyway, I, I don't want to go on at great length, but but it, it's one of those images, uh, occasions that is um, forever. Etched in, yeah.
1: in, in your mind. Boy, I mean, that changed the, 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 his, the track of history, but producer David Yaz says in our text here, RFK's brother-in-law was Stephen Smith. They, okay. Yes.
0: That's right. Thank you. Thank no you.
1: David, yeah. Professor, anything you'd like to add to the Bobby Kennedy story?
2: Not uh, directly. I mean, it's quite, it's quite an amazing, quite an amazing eyewitness to all of these, to all of these events. Uh, it's just, it is it is it is incredible. And I, I don't know whether even the early sort of tour with the Beatles prepared Ivor for that type of chaos or that type of intensity, whether it's the courtroom with Manson or the Ambassador Hotel. Somehow just the, his journalist tools were sharpened to fight through a barrier and to quickly be able to assess the scene when chaos was going on. Mm-hmm.
0: But, but you know, what you do, David, is you... You go into in, into automatic drive. I mean, the shock and the horror of what you've just seen with Bobby. You're a journalist, and you start talking to people and asking them, "What did you see?" and "What and give us confirm this?" You, you you know the emotion because don't forget, Bobby didn't die until I mean, we knew he was he uh, was terribly badly bleeding and wounded, but you don't know he's dead, and, and so you just go into automatic mode, if you like, as a journalist.
1: Wow. Well, Ivor, we are honored to talk to you, man. What, what a, what a life what a career! It's interesting you spent all those years interviewing people, and now people interview you. So, yes, I, I, are- I, yeah, thank you. <laughs> and uh, I do want to remind everybody, what's that, David?
2: I didn't have anything, Josh.
1: No, I that professor said something. Well, I do want to remind everybody we're speaking to the great Ivor Davis with his about his book, The Beatles and Me on tour with the Beatles. And the book is available at IvorDavisBooks.com. I hope I have that correct. And it's a great Christmas gift. And of course, he has his book about Charles Manson. And man, uh, such an honor to have you with us. We really appreciate your generous generosity with time. And David, uh, Professor, any uh, last uh, thoughts and uh, goodbyes from Mr. Davis, Ivor? Well,
2: uh, this is so it's been fascinating and uh, soaked up every single uh, minute of it. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, he is the uh, uh, Edward R. Murrow of, of Beatles coverage.
0: Well, that's pretty high. Thank you. With all these <laughs> well, flattering things you're trying to wrap but thank you, David.
1: <laughs> Maybe after COVID, David, you can find your budget at Suffolk University and have Mr. Davis come and uh, speak to your students. I think that would be great. You could, do it yeah. by, you, could, you could do it by Zoom, church Oh, yeah, you could do it by Zoom, too. <laughs> but we really need to get back into <laughs> each other's space.
0: Yeah, but I, I, but, but I, hold on a minute. I want, you know, I mean, how about a glass of good wine and and, uh, and a decent meal? I mean, you can't do that on <laughs> Zoom, David.
1: <laughs>
2: That's right. Fair enough. Well, you know, when when he when he comes east to visit his grandson, uh, right. uh, you know, we'll uh, take him out for a, a pint and a bowl of chowder.
0: Yes. That's a, that's a great idea. That's the. I want to tell you the only people in the world you can't impress is your grandkids. So I think that would be very impressive.
1: <laughs> well, Mister David, Mister Davis, I know you don't like me to call you Mister Davis, but as oh, we sign off,
0: sounds so informal. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, we honored to have you with us, and your grandchildren should realize who their grandpa is. I mean, you are a historic figure in the Beatles world, and your experiences truly unprecedented it's really an honor to have you with us so everybody go and get Ivor Davis's book The Beatles and Me it's fantastic I I love your little odd facts in the front pages like Libera did Liberace ever meet the Beatles in Vegas
0: yes he did he did yeah and and, and uh, but they weren't too impressed with him they were not too impressed with Shirley Temple they were impressed with Bob Dylan, but uh, but not too many people <laughs> impressed the Beatles
1: and we, we, where did Ringo disappear to the he left overnight where did he go, yeah. parading, or what did he do?
0: So, well, it was in Indianapolis, and, and 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 what happened was, one of the cops became friendly with him, the Indianapolis sheriff's, I think, uh, sheriff's department, and they took him out. They took him for a ride around town, and and he, he didn't tell anybody he'd gone. So there was a little bit of panic when it was discovered that Bringo was in his in his in his bed. Anyway, it was all it all turned out okay.
1: And then you were there f- uh, for Cleveland when they brought the curtain down, which they had never oh, done before.
0: Never done before. And, the, and, and and what happened was that Derek Taylor, who was their publicist, great guy, a terrific guy, brilliant, brilliant sense of humor, Liverpool lad, told the audience, you behave or otherwise the Beatles will go home. So they behaved and they put the curtain up again and, 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 and happiness reigned.
1: Now, one other thing before we go. You have a good book, Professor, when when the dedication at the front of the book is interesting. And Ivor, you you dedicated to Sally Davis. I don't know how you say her middle name, but oh, she no. met and interviewed yes, the Beatles before you. Tell us
0: who,
1: who Sally is and why you dedicated well, the book. My,
0: yeah, she, she was my wife of 46 years and died a few years ago. And she was a BBC television um, Ankle woman at a very young age in in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and they sent her for the BBC to 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 interview the Beatles. So she met the Beatles before I did, and uh, that was always something that uh, <laughs> I remembered. And anyway, and she was a great journalist and. Well, and next time I'll tell you about when she and I went to see John. Y- John Lennon's analyst, the the guy who did uh, primal uh, therapy, Doctor Chapter that. So Sally went with me for BBC television to interview Doctor Art Yanoff. Yes. Another strange period in John Lennon's history. Him and Yoko were born again, but that, we'll leave that for <laughs> another time. Right?
1: Well, you were late to the party when it came to the Beatles and Sally, but God bless yes. her.
0: God right, well, bless her. You. and uh, Thank you for bringing
1: it up. Oh, it's our pleasure. And God bless you, sir. Have a happy holiday. Enjoy the family as much as you can, despite what's going on. And we sincerely appreciate it. com. Get Ivor's book. It's really, really fascinating. Right, Professor? Isn't that a great book? Yes.
2: Yes. And I actually uh, look forward to having the the actual uh, artifact coming to me soon, courtesy of Ivor. And I really, really, really do appreciate that.
1: Well, thank you a very, very generous man. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Get Back to the Beatles. My name is Chachi LaPrette. You can hear my show Breakfast with the Beatles on in three New England states every weekend. And we want to thank our sponsor, Subaru of New England, my famous and handsome co-host, Mr. Professor, Beatles professor, David Gallant from Suffolk University in Boston. Thanks to our producer, David Yaz, the man behind all the controls.
0: No As handsome?
1: I didn't get a handsome?
0: Well you get a handsome
1: well you get a handsome and David is is famous. (laughs) Ivor Davis, God bless you, sir. Be well, stay safe, and we hope to see you again very, very soon.
0: Thank you
1: so much. I'm coming down fast, but don't let me break you.
2: Tell me, tell me, tell me. Make sure to
1: check for the latest episode of Get Back to the Beatles with Chachi Lapret at pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network.